Thank you for reminding us that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. If you don't know where that is, it's on page 958. In my Bible. We'll begin reading in chapter 1 here in just a moment. This morning we're going to talk about the necessity and blessing of repentance. And before we begin, and these will resurface as we close this morning, but I want to begin with some obstacles to repentance. Why do we have such an issue with practicing the discipline of repentance? What are some of the obstacles that get in our way from living a life of repentance? First, you can write these down if you want. First, we have a high view of ourselves. We tend to think that we're really not that bad. After all, we're good people. And since we're not that bad and we're overall good people, we only need to really repent of the bad sins, right? The big ones. And if you have that kind of view of yourself that overall we're good people, then really repentance will seem pointless. So we have a high view of ourselves. Another obstacle to repentance is that we have a distorted view of God. We have a distorted view of God. We treat God as a cosmic cosmic vending machine that has to forgive. Because after all, isn't God love? So he has to forgive us. Well, the scripture's clear that we should not presume on God's mercy. Paul says in Romans, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. The psalmist, I love what he says, he writes in Psalm 130 verses 3 through 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. And here it is, listen. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Another obstacle to repentance is that we cling tightly to our sins. We love our sins. And we cannot hate or repent of that which we love. And some fail to practice repentance because they have deep affection for the sins that they hold tightly onto. Another obstacle is that we haven't been caught yet. God hasn't punished me yet for that sin, so I don't need to repent of it. Thomas Watson, in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, he's a Puritan writer where I will say a lot of this sermon was birthed from in my reading of that book. He writes this about that idea of That God just hasn't punished me yet, so maybe I don't need to repent yet. Watson writes this. 
He says the longer God's arrow is drawing, the deeper it will wound. God's kindness leads to repentance and his kindness and his patience is for your repentance, not your sin. Finally, the last obstacle that I would mention, and there's many more. The last one that I would mention is we, we love the world. We love the world. And the Bible is very clear that if we love the world, we don't love the things of God. The love of God is not in us, as John writes. And so as we think of those and we consider the necessity and blessing of repentance, I want us to think about where we're at in the book of Zechariah. Let me give a little bit of context and history so you know where we're at. Go back with me to the year 520 BC and Zechariah makes his first proclamation. We're in the second year of King Darius, which means the 70 years of exile for the Israelites had passed. Israel at one point had entered into the promised land and the Lord gave them clear instructions and commands of what to do and what not to do. The Israelites chose to rebel against the Lord's instructions. They gave in to nations, the nation's idols and immorality. They broke covenant with the Lord. They refused to repent from their sins. And God sent them, as he said he would, into 70 years of exile in Babylon. But when we come to the text in Zechariah, the exile is over. And God is bringing this new generation of Israelites home. And so the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, their commission to they're commissioned to encourage the Israelites to rebuild the temple. Work on the temple had ceased shortly after the first return by the exiles. But the people have grown discouraged by hard economic times. Jerusalem was still in ruins. Foreign enemies were still threatening them. And so the people's zeal to re-engage in God's purposes grew dull pretty quickly. Why bother doing the Lord's work if this is what we're going to get? And so God sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to preach and to proclaim and to renew their zeal. So Haggai comes in and he does exactly as the Lord instructs him. Haggai or Zechariah follows Haggai a couple months later doing the exact same thing. And so Zechariah, for our text, comes to these apathetic Israelites and he confirms the fulfillment of the former prophets' words. So you're thinking of prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel. And here's what Zechariah is going to do in our section and throughout the remainder of the book with his visions and everything. He's basically going to tell this new generation, learn something from the exile. Learn something from the exile. God was faithful to judge. But God is also faithful to save. And God uses Zechariah to tell God's people that they would have a second chance. Ezra 6.14 confirms this by saying that the Jews built 
and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. So God's word moved God's people to action. And so this morning, as we read the text, what I would like to do is I would like to draw a few observations from the text so we can understand the context. And then I want to make some simple applications that would challenge us in regards to the necessity and the blessing of repentance. So let's begin reading in verse one of chapter one. In the eighth month. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts has purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. As we look through the word this morning in Zechariah, I want to make some observations. The first is the directive that's given in verse three. The directive that's given in verse 3 is, is simply return to me. The Lord of hosts says, return to me. Now, returning to the Lord, this is a common way to talk about repentance in the Old Testament. You can see this in Isaiah, Hosea, Psalm, Lamentations. It describes a turning to God and a turning away from all that God hates. Other places, it refers to turning away from certain behaviors that are evil. But at the core is the idea of an internal 180 toward God, away from those things that cause estrangement from God. Now, it's also significant to note that this command, this, this directive from God to return to me comes to a people who had just returned from exile. They had already returned from the land of Babylon. They had already returned to their homeland. They had already returned to rebuild the temple. And now Zechariah comes and he says, the Lord of hosts says, return to me. And so they keep, they hear this language of return. Why? What's the point? The point is that it highlights the real problem behind the exile. The real problem behind the exile is not geography. It's not architecture. The real problem behind the exile is the sin that brought God's judgment. 
In other words, Zechariah is speaking to folks who had already returned and now he's saying, return to me, says the Lord of hosts. The real exile has to do with the people's estrangement from God because of their sin. And so Zechariah is telling them, who cares if you have the gift of land, but you have no fellowship with God? Who cares if your enemies are now hundreds of miles away, but you still stand as an enemy with God? Who, What use is a temple building if your sin still separates you from the glory of God? And so this directive, this command to return is a command to relationship. It's a command away from sin to have relationship and fellowship with God. To enjoy God. So the command to return is a command to relationship. Not only do we see a directive from the Lord of hosts, return to me, we also see a motivation that's given. And here's the motivation that's given. The motivation is, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So we see a command, a directive. We also see the motivation. Repent to gain a relationship with the Lord of hosts. And so the chief incentive to repent is a relationship with the Lord of hosts. And more accurately, this has to do with the Lord returning to dwell in the midst of His people on Zion. This is a picture of God's kingdom. God's people in God's place under His rule. And this is rather remarkable when you think of who's doing the talking here. He goes by the name, the Lord of hosts. Three, two times in verse three, it says the Lord of hosts. And, and all throughout scripture, this is a title that used to describe God as a mighty warrior, a commander in, in chief over all armies. Other places in scripture, he's the commander in chief over angelic armies that do his bidding. He's the commander in chief over Israel's armies. But we also see in Scripture that he's, also, that he's the commander-in-chief over the armies he sends against Israel to discipline them. Such as what happened in the exile. And in every case that God reveals Himself as the Lord of hosts, whether in judgment or in salvation, He is always righteous and He never loses. Listen to what the psalmist says about the Lord of hosts in Psalm 46. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. The Lord of hosts utters His voice, the earth melts. You see, when the Lord of hosts is for you, it's an amazing thing. But when the Lord of hosts is against you, it's an awful thing. And so when when they hear Zechariah say, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts, this, this strikes fear to the core of their being because this is the Lord of hosts that gathered the armies against their fathers. 
and brought them to ruin. But in addition to the fear that it strikes, what do you think it means for this new generation to hear this same Lord of hosts offering them hope of a relationship with himself? This is great mercy. This same Lord of hosts who shakes the cosmos with his anger comes to this new generation. He says, return to me and I will return to you. The Lord's wrath was spent on their fathers, but now in mercy, he offers this new generation the grace of a new beginning with him on their side. All the might that he has as the Lord of hosts, all the jealousy that he has for his own people, all the salvation that he could offer them, all the deliverance from their enemies they could want, even the very presence of his glory would be theirs if they would simply return. Return to the Lord, and you get the Lord of hosts. But I also want us to see, look back at the text with me, um, through verses 4 through 6. The chief incentive, motivation for returning to the Lord is that you get the Lord. But there's another incentive that I want you to see, another motivation. Verse 4, he says, Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Now here it is. This is going to be some covenant language that we'll discuss here in just a minute. Verse 5, Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my word and my statutes, which I command in my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So another motivation in this text that the Lord of hosts give them, gives them to return to him is that they escape the Lord's covenant curse. We should remember that God made a covenant with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. He warned them in that covenant of what would happen if they ignored his commands and didn't treat God as holy among the nations. Deuteronomy chapter 28 talks about that if Israel obeys the covenant, once they entered the land, then all kinds of blessings would overtake them. Same word used in Zechariah 1.6. Deuteronomy 28 also says that if if you rebel against what the Lord commanded you, then all kinds of curses will overtake you. This word overtake that we see in Deuteronomy 28 and here in Zechariah 1.6 is a haunting term. It's the idea that God's covenant word would overtake them just like he promised it would in Deuteronomy 28. I want you to hear just a little bit of the language here in Deuteronomy It says, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. You continue reading in Deuteronomy 28, which I won't. This list of curses are horrific. The worst of them is perishing, being cut off from God's presence. The curse of exile ended their fathers. And so the Lord tells this new generation, don't think that just because your fathers are dead and that the prophets are dead, verse 5, 
that my covenant word doesn't abide. He's making this comparison between the brevity of human life, the fathers and prophets died off, and the ongoing nature of his word. But my word and my statutes, did they not overtake your father's? The point is that God's covenant word still remains for this new generation. And if they live just like their fathers lived and rebel against the Lord and do not return to the Lord of hosts, then the Lord's, then God's covenant word would sniff them out and destroy them as well. And so the message that Zechariah gives them is urgent. You don't live forever. My word does. Repent, return to me while you still have time. And so we've seen the directive to return. We see the motivation to return. I want you to finally see the response in verse 6. What do the people do? The latter part of verse 6, it says, So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purpose to deal with us for our ways and deeds so as he dealt with us so they repented the remnant within the new generation that Zechariah is preaching to repented it's the people he told in verse 3 to return that are now in response to God's word returning repenting to God you see there where they say, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. This, their confession of how the Lord dealt with us for our ways and our deeds is a corporate confession of intergenerational sin. Is the case with much confession of sin in the Old Testament. There's this solidarity between present community and previous generations. And so in this case, the remnant acknowledges their guilt and race into the arms of a God who is merciful and passionate to restore them to himself. And if you are so brave to continue reading the book of Zechariah, this paves the way for the kinds of promises the Lord makes to the remnant throughout the vision Zechariah has throughout the remainder of the book. And so that's an overview of the text. Now, how does this apply to us? What are some implications? What are things that we can learn about repentance from this passage? But I want to be clear up front. Repentance is not something that went out with the old covenant. Repentance is very much part of God's new covenant message as well. In fact, I would say the message of repentance becomes all the more urgent with the coming of Jesus Christ because it means that God's final kingdom is even closer than it was in Zechariah's day. Ladies and gentlemen, without repentance, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Without repentance, we will not inherit the promises of God. And so this message on repentance is just as crucial for us to hear. So what are some things we learn about repentance from this text? Number one, repentance is centered on a relationship with the Lord. 
I'm hopeful that this one point right here might set some of you free this morning. So listen closely. Not because of these, these are my words. Repentance is centered on a relationship with the Lord. It's not merely feeling guilty about your sin. It's not merely saying you're sorry for what you've done. Repentance is not even merely saying no to evil desires and deeds. Repentance is not just getting rid of sins that bug and frustrate you the most. Most important to repentance is that there is a return to relationship with the Lord. Look at what he says to them. Return to me. Now, is holy behavior part of the outworking of repentance? Absolutely. You can see this in the text. It, they turn away from evil. They did not turn away from their evil deeds, the text says. So repentance involves turning away from evil things and evil ways. Later in Zechariah, he will tell them to judge rightly, to show kindness and mercy, to not oppress the widow or the poor, or the fatherless. So a change in behavior is a part of repentance. You can see at the latter part of verse 6 that repentance will even lead to verbal confessions of sorts. But underneath that confession and that behavior change must be a person. God doesn't call you to, God doesn't just call us to a way of life, but to a person of love. The Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ. Repentance is incomplete if there's no turning to the Lord. Any kind of behavioral change that's divorced from a relationship with Christ is mere moralism and is just as damning. A mere turning away from sin and evil without turning to the Lord can be just as idolatrous because something else remains the object of your affection instead of the Lord. Repentance is relational. It's internal affection for the one calling you home. I was reading um, a book, or I'm still reading the book, uh, by Thomas Brooks called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. In dealing with repentance, Thomas Brooks writes this. Every sin strikes at the honor of God. The being of God, the glory of God, the heart of Christ, the joy of the spirit and the peace of a man's conscience. And therefore, a soul truly penitent strikes at all, hates all, conflicts with all and will labor to draw strength from a crucified Christ to crucify all. Repentance is not only a turning from all sin, but also a turning to all good, to love all good, to a prizing of all good, and to a following after all good, which is Jesus. 
Repentance is about a relationship. Another thing we see from the text that we can apply about repentance to our own life is repentance is stirred by God's word. It's inspired and it stirs, God's word stirs us to repentance. It's the Spirit's words through the prophet Zechariah that brings the people to repentance. And the same is true for us today. God brings repentance through His Word. The Word exposes our sin. The Word convicts us of when we're in error. The Word humbles us before the Lord of hosts and all of His glory. The Word warns us of the coming judgment. The Word heralds the love of God in Christ Jesus. The Word births new faith in the apathetic soul. And so we must give attention to the Word of God. If all we're listening to is our own words or the culture's words, then we'll not be stirred to return to the Lord. And that's a dangerous place to be. And so if you haven't been in the Word lately, see that this God comes to you with gracious arms saying and promising, return to me and I'll return to you. Listen to His words. Dig into His words. and It'll bring refreshment to your soul. I want you to listen to Psalm 119. This is a a text that, and I don't need you to hold me accountable to this, but this is a text I've been working to memorize. Please don't hold me accountable. It's a long chapter. And I've made it to about verse (laughs) 1. But I want you to listen to what the psalmist writes. Blessed are those who are blameless, who walk in the way of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. You have commanded that your precepts be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By hiding your word in his heart. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Let me not wonder from your commandments. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth in the ways of your testimonies. I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Repentance is stirred by the Word of God. Another thing we learn here that we can apply to our lives is repentance is necessary to experience God's favor. God's promise to return to His people has a condition. The people must repent. And the same is true in the message of the Old Te- in the New Testament gospel. Jesus told the people, unless you repent, you will 
all likewise perish. And he means perish away from the favorable presence of God. We cannot profess to be Christian while refusing to practice repentance. We cannot say we are slaves of Jesus Christ while remaining indifferent to our sinful addictions. It's as Jesus told those who thought themselves to be righteous. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You see, heaven doesn't rejoice over people who think they're okay. It rejoices over people who know they're not. Repentance is necessary for all of us. We cannot keep loving the things that God hates. And so my, I want you to listen to the Lord's plea this morning. Return to me and I'll return to you. See that His arms are open wide to receive all who will turn. Put away your evil ways, your evil desires, your evil deeds, and come to the Lord of hosts. He will not turn you away when you humble yourself before Him. And He'll shine on you with His gracious favor. Forgive your sins. Restore your wayward soul. And this is all possible because of the sacrificial death and glorious resurrection of Jesus. Which brings me to the last point. Repentance comes with forgiveness and restoration because of Jesus. If you continue to read through Zechariah, you'll see that these words of repentance come in relation to God's temple. God's grace would move the people to rebuild the temple. Why? Because the temple was the place where God's presence dwelt. And it was also the place where sacrifice for sins took place. Something had to die in the place of another for God to dwell so freely with His people. Now fast forward with me to John's Gospel. John's Gospel tells us that Jesus fulfills the temp- everything the temple and the sacrifices looked forward to. Jesus is the superior temple. Jesus is the superior sacrifice. Because Jesus died in our place, God forgives sin. And when you come to God trusting in the blood of Jesus, He forgives your sins and cleanses you from all unrighteousness. And because Jesus is risen as the new and better temple, God happily dwells with all who love Him and trust Him. Your relationship is restored with God when you trust in Christ alone. And instead of waiting in dread for the day of judgment, you wait with eager anticipation for the day when you will see the Lord of hosts face to face and forever enjoy His favor and His presence. Church, because of the life, death, and glorious resurrection of Jesus, we have access to God. And so this morning, I, I don't know where you're at. There, there might be some of you sitting here hearing about repentance and coming to the Lord and, and, and the Spirit's convicting you and you've never done that before. 
You've never repented of your sin. And so maybe this morning's the first time that you come and you do that. Confessing that you're a sinner and that you're in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. Others of you in this room... Might need to just be still before the Lord or come to the altar or come forward here in just a moment to talk with someone because you're living in habitual sin. You're holding tightly to the things of this world. You're loving your sin more than you're loving Christ. Your marriage is falling apart because your sin. You're rebelling against God. Repent. Return to the Lord of hosts. And He'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. God, You are gracious and You are kind. And Lord, I pray that in these moments as we sing, God, that You would draw people to Yourself. That people who have not come to you would, would turn, return and would turn to you and say, Lord, I need you. Come and save me. Lord, for others in this room, I pray that your spirit would convict them and they would repent of their sin. Lord, I pray that none of us in this room would be sitting here at this moment thinking we're okay. Oh God, we need you in this moment. So Lord, I pray that all of us in this room would return to the Lord of hosts. We love you and we thank you. It's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. I'll be down front. If you need to come and pray, talk to me. We'll have ministers here as well that can pray with you and encourage you. Let's sing our song of invitation this morning.